Hope y'all are doing well. We want to pray and uh, jump in. Uh, as usual, there's, there's plenty to, to discuss and to talk about. Uh, Greg, can you open us in prayer? Yeah, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, we are so thankful for, for the grace that you have extended to us. God, grace that we could never earn, could never deserve this favor, uh, divine favor, God, that we so desperately need, and you have flooded our lives with it through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, grace abounds to us, Lord, and we are so grateful, uh, Lord, for what Christ has done to rescue us from our sin and death, to bring us back to you, to give us a perfect, unchangeable right standing with you, to guarantee for us an eternity with you, to give forgiveness of sins, to adopt us into your family, to be your beloved children, and to be heirs with Christ. God, you have done so much. Lord, we have so much to be thankful for, so much to rejoice over. Um, and Lord, I, I thank you that you've given us your word to guide us. Lord, as your redeemed people, we want to follow you. We want to honor you with our lives and with our words. And you show us so clearly in the pages of Scripture how we can do that. And Lord, we pray that with what we talk about today, with what we've been talking about and what's still to come, God, that you would use that to help us be more conformed to Christ, better able to represent him and make him known in, in a very hostile world, uh, a world that's so hostile to him. So God, please give us wisdom. Please give us understanding. Give us clarity. Uh, give us conviction. Give us boldness and also humility and graciousness to people. Um, but Lord, help us be able to see error, expose it for what it is, uh, refute it, um, and uphold what is true. Uh, so Lord, guard us from the evil one in this time and help us to honor our Savior in all that we say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to just jump in here. We want to get to Scripture in just a second. But before we do that, I thought I would jump in. One of the goals with showing clips like this is, is to show you, I guess, a couple things. One would be what sort of the ideology of wokeness sounds like, what it talks like when you hear it, how to identify it, how to know when it's showing up. The other thing is to show, I think, how widespread it is and how it, it, it corrupts not just churches, but any institution it is introduced into. It has the same sort of direction. It pushes everything, and everyone begins speaking the same way, no matter if it's a church. I've, I mean, people have said all kinds of different things. It could be any kind of group of people, uh, and, and it's similar. So this is and I could have shown different videos very similar to this, but I just picked this one. This is from the University of Minnesota Medical School uh, recently, an incoming class of medical students who will be graduating in a few years. And this is, the, uh, this is their uh, oath that they took at the beginning of their ceremony. And they have the, the, not only will you hear it, but you'll also see it printed on the screen. And just, if you follow along, I think you'll start picking up on the kinds of phrases, ways of framing things that are pretty typical of the woke movement. And again, I say this not in any kind of mean-spirited way, it really begins to take on religious feelings. It, it sounds like cultic in a sense, where you, you have this sort of way of speaking, a way of framing everything around this one set of issues, this, this series of issues. And uh, so keep your eyes out for this wherever you are in, in life. Here we go. With gratitude, we, the students of the University of Minnesota Twin Cities Medical School class of 2026. Is it loud enough or does it need to be louder? Okay. 
stand here today among our friends, families, peers, mentors, and communities who have supported us in reaching this milestone. Our institution is located on Dakota land. Today, many indigenous people throughout the state, including Dakota and Ojibwe, call the Twin Cities home. We also recognize this acknowledgement is not enough. We commit to uprooting the legacy and perpetuation of structural violence deeply embedded within the healthcare system. We recognize inequities built by past and present traumas rooted in white supremacy, colonialism, the gender binary, ableism, and all forms of oppression. As we enter this profession with opportunity for growth, we commit to promoting a culture of anti-racism, listening, and amplifying voices for positive change. We pledge to honor all indigenous ways of healing that have been historically marginalized by Western medicine. Knowing that health is intimately connected to our environment, we commit to healing our planet and communities. We vow to embrace our role as community members and strive to embody cultural humility. We promise to continue restoring trust in the medical system and fulfilling our responsibilities as educators and advocates. We commit to collaborating with social, political, and additional systems to advance health equity. We will learn from the scientific innovations made before us and pledge to advance and share this knowledge with peers and neighbors. We recognize the importance of being in community with and advocating for those we serve. So I don't know if you'd seen that particular video before. There are, there's another video very similar to it with a very similar statement for medical students in another college. And we could probably go through a host of videos of all kinds of things like this. But you'll see, do you, do you hear a lot of the interconnecting ideas that we've been talking about all sort of lumped together? You have the sexual revolution linked with wokeness. So what, what sort of to hyphenate, it's kind of like the woke pride movement, right? So you've got the, the pride movement being the LGBT movement, which is the gender binary, which is a form of oppression. That's what they say. And then along with that, you have this particular view of white supremacy and this particular view of racism, which is, a, I think, a distorted view of those things. And they're all married together with certain views of the environment, along with views of, of, uh, of indigenous peoples and all these different things. And I, it's not to say there's never a grain of truth in anything that is being referenced, okay? We, we, we're not saying everything in that statement is entirely false. But do you all see the framing of it? is deeply problematic. From a Christian standpoint, this is not the way to frame and categorize things. And if we, we've all used the phrase probably, eat the meat and spit out the bones. Y'all have heard that, right? With, with different things. Like some teachers have some flaws in some areas. We eat the meat, we spit out the bones. And there is wisdom. We should always be discerning no matter who we're listening to, if you're listening to us or whether you're listening to anybody, we should always be using biblical discernment. We should never just swallow something because someone we like said it or someone we respect said it or someone we dislike or whatever said it. That, that, that's irrelevant. We should, we should me measure it by Scripture. That's certainly true. But this system is not something where we meet, eat the meat and spit out the bones. Uh, it's kind of like, can I, can I just give an example? Darwinian evolution. Not everything said by a Darwinist is wrong, obviously right? But can you adopt the system of Darwinian evolution and eat the meat and spit out the bones? It doesn't work like that. Because to use the system, it, ha it works as a tool. And the way the tool works is it assumes we all evolved from a singular life form long ago. And if you, if you lose that, you don't have Darwinian evolution at all. So it's, it's a system. You can't adopt it unless you adopt the basic premise 
which is false. You see, so, so with, with this system, to, to buy into the basic premises of these things, whether there's grains of truth in it or not is almost not the point. The system is so structured in a way to take you further down, and it's not heading towards a biblical way of framing things. Yeah. Um, thinking of, you mentioned it as a tool, one of the, the catchphrases that we've heard in Christian circles in relation to CRT is, well, we reject the worldview, but we're going to use it as an analytical tool. They believe in terms of analyzing society, it can be helpful to help mm-hmm. us see things and ask questions that we wouldn't see and otherwise wouldn't ask. Um, but the problem is the tool itself is poison. The tool itself is, is corrupted. So you can't, you can't extract the, the tool of analysis from these systems, from CRT, Marxism, whatever, you can't extract the tool from it and expect the tool to somehow be neutral, unaffected. It's like it's got a, like, you know, the fungus or whatever, like it's, it's, it's got the, the very means of the system is embedded in the tool itself. And so it's not possible to use the tool in a God-honoring way. Can, we, can, it, can you say yeah. something about, because we made a big deal a couple years ago when the SBC was, I think it was 2019 maybe when I they were meeting, so, yeah. and they, they adopted what was, became infamously known as Resolution 9, and we, we showed a documentary about that a couple of years ago, but can you say a word about why the, the phrasing of that was problematic? Because they were saying, we're, we're bringing this on as an analytical tool. We don't agree with much of what CRT yeah. says, but the SBC voted to say, we want to bring this on, we, we're going to call critical race theory a useful tool, an analytical Political tool for examining yeah. culture, even though we don't agree with many of its premises or where it's coming from with Marxism. Any, any, any issues with how that was even worded? Yeah, um, I think we talked about this last time. Um, I'm not sure, but we've already heard some of this, is they want to say, well, you've got this system that's been hijacked by bad people, and they're acting as though the system itself can be sound. They even said that in the resolution you know, like critical race theory, like they, they acted like this tools themselves are okay. Neutral They've almost. just been misused by Marxists and folks of that nature. And the illustration I gave then is one I keep coming back to. If you've read Lord of the Rings, then you, you're familiar with what I'm going to say. You know, in that story, this, this dark lord named Sauron created this master ring that would help him enslave all the peoples in Middle-earth. Um, and it didn't matter how noble-hearted you were, how pure your intentions were, if you somehow got a hold of that ring. You could try to use it for good, but it would eventually, everything you did with it would be tainted, and you yourself would eventually become twisted, distorted, and corrupted. You remember, if you've seen the movies, it's also referenced in the book when Frodo offered the ring to Gandalf, and Gandalf was like, you know, no, you can't give me this. Why? You know, I would use it out of desire to do good, but through me, it would do all kinds of evil. He realized even with the noblest of intentions, the, the corrupting power of the ring and the evil that was in it would do nothing ultimately but bring about bad. And I think that illustrates worldviews and principles like what we're considering here. You can't like say, well, well I'm, I'm not going to use it for evil. I'm going to use it for good. Something that's inherently evil is only going to produce evil. Um, if it, it's, 
was it, I was think, trying to think of this guy the other day because I remember in college in speech communication, we, we talked about some of this. I didn't know it all at the time what all I was ex- ex- exposed to, but a guy named Kenneth Burke is the one who, maybe the one who popularized like the rose-colored glasses illustration that we think about. Um, and he talked about we all view the world with these glasses. And so if you, you, if, if you put the glasses of CRT on, it's going to affect everything you see. And you can't say, oh, well, I'm, it's like if, if you take the, the shades off, it's no longer, you know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. like you, you can't separate the tool of analysis from the, the worldview that, that it comes from. It's fundamentally corrupt in every way. And so even with a good intention, if you try to use CRT to identify racism, you're going to end up finding racism where it doesn't exist. You're going to be accusing people of being racist who aren't racist in the slightest. You're going to find all kinds of oppression that doesn't exist. It's not there, but it has to be if you're going to use the tool. And it has to be. Again, this is, I know this seems, and it, frankly, it, it is a silly illustration, but it's a real illustration. I mentioned this probably more than two, a year and a half ago at our church, so it's been a minute. But when my wife was at UGA a decade or so ago, when she was at UGA, um, she, she was taught this stuff, not even knowing what it was. It was just mm-hmm. coming at her from her professors. And so one of the things that she and other ladies at this church that were at UGA at the same time were taught were, were these things. So y'all have heard the phrase microaggression or the, the term microaggression or microassault, which is, which is an interesting term. So these were actually given to uh, my wife, I know to Aaron Webster and some other ladies who were at UGA at the time. This was, this was being told as a microaggression. So here's the idea. This was actually said in class. If you go into a UGA bus and you're driving, you know, you're riding home from class and you see the guys on the bus, have you noticed that sometimes guys will be sort of sprawled out, uh, arms up, out, their legs might be spread out a little bit more, they're taking up more space on the bus? Have you noticed that? And they're like, I mean, I, I guess, yeah, okay, maybe I've seen that. Okay, have you noticed sometimes a, a woman on the bus or a girl on the bus might be, might, might be a little bit, like, she might be like a little bit tighter together, like her arms and legs might be a little closer together or whatever. Okay, well, clearly you know what's going on here, right? We're like, uh, people are just riding home from school on the bus is what's going on. But no, the, you, you know what's going on. <clears throat> Sexism is everywhere all the time. Men, men uh, are oppressive because, because of the, the male patriarchy and whatnot, and they're trying to keep women down. And so how does a man who is deeply sexist to his core, r- r- he's grown up in a, in, a, in a male supremacist society, how does he express on a micro, a micro scale his, his dominance over women? Well, the answer is he sprawls out in the bus. So he sticks there, he sits there, he puts his arms out wide, and he sits wide in the bus, he puts his legs in a certain way, showing, see, I'm, I'm, I'm better than you because I'm a man. And whereas he, he wants all the women to feel like they have to curl up in a ball in the corner of the bus. Okay. I guess there could be some guy somewhere, and that's, that's what he's thinking. That's, that's certainly possible. You need a lot more evidence than the way he's postured sitting on the bus, okay? So if he actually says something like, women are, less, like, women are inferior to men, or women are less dignified than men, okay, you're dealing with real biblical sexism, like actually like something sinful here. But if you're just dealing with a guy who's just tired coming home from, from a long day at school, and you're going to say, okay, that's a microaggression against women because of how you're postured, it's a little moment where your deep sexism is, is a little, it's like showing, it's coming up, it's like the wave is coming up over the surface, and I'm seeing the deep little, the deep recesses of sexism in your life or whatever, and therefore I know that is true. Or another example, I mean, these are, these are not, I mean, this, this is real stuff. Uh, another example would be if I said to Greg, uh, did you see the guy who wrote this article? I can't remember his name. And it turns out a woman wrote the article. You say, see, you said guy. You were assuming his gender was a he. It turned out it was a woman. The reason you said that is because you assume that men write intelligent things and women are not capable of writing intelligent articles. So of course you assume the article was written by a guy. It was a man. That's, that's male supremacy bubbling up in a microaggression. Now, honestly, honestly, 
is that really what has to be going on? Do you see the problem is you end up reading the worst possible reading on someone's actions and you end up crediting to them the worst possible guilt. Like you are a deep sexist or white supremacist or whatever. You're this and that phobic, right? You're Islamophobic. That's why you said that. All these different things are, are, are credited to someone based on micro aggressions, which honestly may not be in any way based on the things that they're claimed for being. So again, th these are the dangers. If you assume these things are everywhere all the time, then the slightest indicator is definite proof of sexism, racism, on and on and on. The list goes. Yeah. And it's, it's really a lot of times one, you might have done something unintentionally. You might be ignorant about something. Um, and it, it, again, yeah, it's just assuming the worst possible motives um, in people anytime they do anything. And it's like, you can't ever win. Like, it's impossible to come out right. on top with something like that. You just, you can't. You're all, the fact that you even get defensive proves that you're guilty of what they're accusing you of. What's that called? White fragility. White fragility. Like, when it comes to this, like, if someone says, well, you're racist because, well, no, I'm not. See, your defensiveness proves that you got a problem. No, that could just be natural inclination to, to say, no, the evidence doesn't back up what you're saying, and I'm not going to wear that. Um, I'm, not, I'm not going to accept that, that label because it's not true. But again, any kind of, you know, it's, it's the, you joke about people say, you know, the first sign of being a negative person is you reject it, and you're, you're a negative. No, I'm not. See, that proof. It's like, yeah, denial is the first sign of it. It's like, it's, it's a ridiculous argument that's it's self-biased from the get-go in the wrong direction. And just, I want, I want to add here, of course, it is possible that my defensiveness is my sin, is my heart justifying yeah, my sin. Absolutely. It is, that is absolutely possible, and there are many, many times that I have tried to justify my sin. That's not what we're arguing against. That's absolutely true. We've all been guilty, haven't we, of being called out and saying, well, no, I have a great reason for sinning. <laughs> like, we always try to do that. That's not what Greg's saying here. What we're saying is to say that any time um, a man pushes back against a particular issue or a white person pushes back or whatever mm -hmm. the category is, to assume every time there's pushback, it's due to racism or whatever. That's, that's the problem when you're assuming guilt automatically. Dude, let's, let's look at a few scriptures <laughs> yes. here. Um, we're we're going to relate some of the ones we've looked at before. There's a couple ones we haven't seen yet. But again, I, I, we've gone over some of this. Remember our definitions of justice um, and righteousness and equity. I mean, justice is giving every person his due, treating him according to what he deserves. And what was the, the four components? Truthful, impartial, proportional, direct. Um, for justice, you think of righteousness, you know, conformity to God's law in a, in a societal sense, adhering to the law as it is. And equity is just impartially distributing justice, you know, making sure justice is done correctly. Um, really, that's equity. Um, and so that's reflective of what the Bible teaches. We've already looked at a lot of scriptures. I hope you've written them down. We've got some more we're going to look at. Yeah. Could you read this one for us, Greg? This is Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 21. Deuteronomy yeah. 19, 15 to 21. All right. I'm going to read this. Uh, he says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. 
The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear in fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, I want to make a comment on this because we've talked about this one already, but something struck me, and I want to make sure I say it. We might have already said this, but I think it bears repeating. You know, Jesus dealt with the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, in the misapplication of that from the Pharisees. You know, often it's like, well, it's, it's, it's given there to, you know, keep people from overpunishing. But in this particular instance, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, whatever, that's like if you maliciously and falsely accuse someone, like the eye for eye says, okay, this is what's going to happen to you, exactly whatever punishment you thought this person should receive for your false claim, that's what's going to be done to you. It was a preventative measure to keep people from making false accusations. Because you say, oh, you did this and you should have this happen. And it's proven false. Whatever it was you were aiming for, for that person, that's what law is going to do to you. And so that has a big restraining element to it, mm-hmm. a very powerful restraining element to keep people from falsely accusing others. The next one here is from Jeremiah 9. It's a pretty well-known text, but it's worth quoting here. I'll read it for us. Jeremiah 9, 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. A word about that, Greg? Um, I mean, one, we're seeing in verse 24 what God delights in. I mean, he, he says that very clearly. I delight in what? Steadfast love. I delight in justice, rightly understood. I delight in righteousness, rightly understood. Um, and when it comes to our own attitude, I think he gets at something, you know, at the end of the day. You know, we don't need to boast, even if we are considered wise. Like, don't boast in that. Don't boast in how mighty you are. Don't boast in how rich you are. You boast in knowing God and that God knows you. And so it really removes any ground for, for vengeance, um, for using whatever strength you have to take your vengeance on anyone um, because justice is opposed to vengeance in terms of, uh, for us. I mean, God says, I will have vengeance, you know, says the Lord, and that's his place. It's never our place to take vengeance, um, but God will do right. And, you know, even if we have the ability to get somebody, if you got the might to do it, um, or the, the riches, the wealth to do it, don't do it. And what you see today is people who, who are claiming oppression and who often aren't, they're trying to gain power. They're trying to gain riches so that they can use that against others. And God's saying, listen, that's the last thing you want to boast in. You need to, you, if, if that's what you're boasting in, then ultimately we can't boast in God. If we're boasting in, oh, look what I can do to you because of some perceived wrong, you can't boast in the Lord. I, I would question if you can even rightly say you know the Lord if you're going to have such a, an ongoing unrepentant attitude. And complementing that verse uh, is also well-known, Micah 6, 6 to 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly 
with your God. And again, verses like this are often being hijacked, but we want to define, like you said, these terms in a biblical way. Yeah, and I think justice in this sense isn't trying to overthrow the system of government in Israel. It's simply applying rightly what's already there. You know, it's not like they have to create new terms. They don't have to create new systems out of the old, which are terrible. It's simply Israel is not loving their neighbor. They're not treating one another the way they're supposed to be. And that's why God's like, look, um, this, this is what you need to do. Don't, don't do all these, you know, think you're okay because you perform all the right rituals as my people. Like, live, treat other people the way I've told you to treat them. You know, be just. You know, give people their due. Don't, don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't do any of that stuff. Um, love kindness and walk humbly with God. Like, that's, they were doing the opposite of that. And so God's just correcting them back to what they should have been doing all along. So some verses that we, we certainly haven't looked at much here are from Proverbs. Uh, Greg was looking up these and, and, and showed these to me this week, and th- these are very relevant to the issue of justice. Let's look at uh, Proverbs eighteen seventeen. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. You probably remember that proverb. It's a great proverb. So a person comes and gives their, their position first, and it may sound very persuasive, but let's, let's wait. Let's hear the other side before we come to a conclusion. Sometimes if we, if we reach our conclusion prematurely, we will not actually come down on the side of justice. Mm-hmm. And uh, Proverbs 18, 13, just a few verses before that one. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Now, we, we've all probably been guilty of this, right? We, we, we come to our conclusion, we're absolutely certain this is the answer, but we haven't even heard everything yet. Before we've truly even heard everything, we've already come down with our answer, and that could be to folly and shame. And Proverbs 20.10, a great principle for justice. Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Now, we don't use weights and measures in the same way that they did, at least not as much as they used to. But if you were trading for goods... You had to know how much the goods weighed, and you're going to pay a certain amount per pound or whatever it might have been, ounce or whatever they used, you know, in, in the measurement system of their day. And so if you use false measurements, you are ripping off people. You are you're overcharging with false weights, and you're saying, hey, that's $20 a pound. I don't know what they used back then, but $20 a pound, well, you're, it's actually less than a pound that you're measuring. And so now you're, you're ripping, you're lying and, and, and exploiting someone for money. And so unequal weights and unequal measures uh, are abomination. And we need to use the same, the same, and this is what Jesus gets at in Matthew 7, which is my sermon text next week, uh, judge not, that passage. But uh, I won't go there right now. But the idea of using an equal measurement for both parties, that mm-hmm. we, we don't use one measurement for Greg and another one for Mark. We, we want to use right. equal weights and equal measures for both people involved. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it, yeah, it's a business principle in the, you know, in the business world um, of, of sale and trade and all that. Um, but it applies to all of life. Like, um, and this, this is what, what CRT does. It, it operates with unequal weights. It operates with unequal, unequal measures. It already weights the, the, the discussion a certain way. And so that's why we say it's inherently corrupt. The, the whole premise of the system is inherently corrupt. And it's, you know, they claim to be against bias and all of that, but it's actually creating bias. I was trying to find the, um, was this, this is from Neil Shinvey. Um, and I don't know if this was his words or what he actually read in one of the critical race theory books that he, he uh, reviewed. But basically, CRT recognizes that in order to achieve substantive equality, there must be some dissimilar treatment of the dissimilarly situated individuals and groups in society. Now, that's a mouthful. And they can, love can you read talk. it one more time? Yeah, li- listen to this. CRT recognizes that in order to achieve 
substantive, substantive equality. In, in other words, equal outcomes is what that means. Right. Yes, equal outcomes. There must be some dissimilar treatment of the dissimilarly situated individuals and groups in society. That's a like, and so basically, uh, you said this. Basically, get rid to get rid of uneven outcomes. We have to be partial. We have to be partial. We have to prefer one group over another if they're going to level the outcomes of job, you know, job pay, you know, uh, educational achievement, and whatever. You have to be basically. You have to be biased. You you have to be partial. You have to show preference. Um, and again, all of that goes against what God clearly says in Scripture and just against common sense. I think that's probably one of the things that makes this so difficult in our society is our society used to have a reflex against the kind of stuff it's wholeheartedly embracing now. No, that's true. And uh, one, I think we've got, uh, yeah, this is the last verse, Proverbs twelve seventeen. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. So whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. And, and we want to be humble and follow the evidence where it truly goes. We, we don't want to, on any side of this issue, we don't want to start with our conclusion and say, I've got to find a way to find my conclusion in the evidence. That, that's a faulty way of arguing no matter what way we're coming at the issue. We want to follow the, the evidence where it, where it goes. We don't want to be victims of being deceived. Well, and I think this is, this is going to lead us into talking a little more about disparities and, um, you know, supposed discrimination. It's not saying a false witness doesn't have evidence. It's just the evidence they're using is false evidence. So it's not just, just that, the, you know, the, whoever speaks the truth, oh, here's my true evidence, and the other, oh, that's not true. Like, they, they try to present stuff that's false, but they present it as though it's true. Um, and that, that's just... One, it's, it's an outright lie. It's deceptive. It's cruel. It's, it, there's so many descriptives we could give on that. But we have to evaluate evidence. I think this is one of the biggest things um, that the church, at first, glance, at, at first blush on this, with a lot of the social justice stuff, failed to do. Because we rightly have like a, a reflex of grief over the racist past in our nation. Like the, the horrible things that were done, slavery, Jim Crow, um, I mean, the history of it, the more you learn, the more it'll make your stomach turn and churn, and it'll make you sick um, the way black people were treated in this country. I mean, it, it, was, it was utterly appalling um, in, in so many ways. And so we have a, a right reflex to want to feel, you know, to, to grieve and to, to push back against racism. And so when this came in at first, so many people were not expecting it to be couched the way it was term the way it was. And so a lot of people started drinking this Kool-Aid, if you were, before they actually evaluated whether or not the claims were, were legit. And again, going back to the verses we've been looking at, we have to allow a patient process of investigation because, um, what was it? It was Proverbs 18, 17. Will you call, call that one back up? Yes, um, right there at the top. The one who states his case first seems right until another comes and examines him. That word for examines, I looked it up, um, means to give a thorough investigation of something. Um, and I mean, our, our whole law system is based on that. Whenever a crime is committed, we want to have a thorough investigation. I think that's one of the reasons why like all the crime shows are such a big deal <laughs> is they don't just, you know, on a whim, like they go, they try to find all the details and investigate and find the people and the motives and the, ev like 
it's a thorough investigation of what actually happened. Um, and so when it comes to the issue of like disparities, when there's an uneven outcome, one of the assumptions led by CRT and, and ways of thinking like that is wherever there's a disparity, discrimination, sinful discrimination must be the cause of that unequal, unequal outcome. Um, now, the word discrimination, we, I, we unfortunately have to be careful with that word today. You could be discriminating before, and what that meant was like you're discerning, like you have a discriminating palate or discriminating mind, meaning you're very discerning, you're a very careful thinker. Now it has such a negative connotation. If you're discriminating against someone, you're showing sinful prejudice, sinful bias, sinful partiality um, against them. And so when that word discrimination is used today, it's always in the negative. And we want to make sure we understand that. But again, it's like, so if you have two people, one a white person, one a black person, um, and the white person is able you know, they, they, they both like say they have similar degrees and they get in similar jobs. Um, but the, the, the white person, I should say they don't have the job yet, but they're both applying. And let's say the white person gets the job, you know, well, because the black person didn't and the white person did, there must've been discrimination at work. That's how this works. Not having investigated the actual merits of either person, not having investigated, you know, work history, recommendations, all that references, um, capabilities without having investigated any of that, the assumption is, well, the black person didn't get it because discrimination is at work. And that's what we want to push against right now. Yeah, I mentioned this book, I think it was last Sunday. It's not written by a Christian. I'm not saying theologically this is where you want to go. Thomas Sowell, who I had a picture of him somewhere in here. Let me get back. Here he is. So he's like 93 years old. He's been an economist at, uh, for, for, his, uh, for his whole adult life. He started out in his 20s as a Marxist. So it's really interesting that he was, he was a full-blown Marxist, and then he, he swung the other direction, he said, based on the evidence. But again, uh, just, just the first few chapters of this book are utterly fascinating. I read them twice because I was so blown away by it, but I can't even do justice to summarizing what he's doing. He, he footnotes everything. He has tons and tons and tons of scholarly footnotes, but let me just give you like a little sampling of what he's arguing for in this book. Again, not from a Christian perspective, so we got to be careful with, with what, we, what we believe from him, but he's just trying to give us data. And what he says is this, um, there are disparities all over the world amongst all kinds of people for almost limitless numbers of reasons. And he said the idea that discrimination is the only or primary reason that there are disparities is simply untrue. And he just starts breaking it down. This is stuff I would have never stopped to think about. Number one, people, doesn't matter of ethnicity here. If you lived in a port city in the ancient times, you were more likely to be better educated, more financially stable, and having more access to the greater parts of the world than people living more than 70 miles inland anywhere on earth. So, so automatically, if you live 70 miles inland, unless you live near a river basin where that river connects to the main body of water and you can quickly travel, if you live inland, just 70 miles back in the, in the old times, there's no cars and trains and airplanes, uh, well, then you're going to be, generally speaking, uh, at, at a disadvantage. There, there's going to be a big difference. He says, how about this? People who live in river basins were far more economically prosperous, far more educated than, than so-called like... Um, mountain peoples, as they call them. And he said, there's like 10% of our planet has been mountain peoples. And he said, listen, 
He said, this is no knock on mountain people. He said, I'm not making fun of mountain people. I'm just telling you, as a simple statement of fact, over thousands of years, if you lived in the mountains before modern transportation, guess what? If you wanted heavy cargo taken up to where you live, it was extraordinarily taxing and time-consuming and extremely expensive. So guess what? Far less goods were taken up to mountain peoples than people who lived in river basins. Well, guess what that means? There was, generally speaking, less education and less literacy for mountain peoples, and there was far more literacy for people who lived near rivers. Now, guess what? Does that have anything to do with genetic differences? No. Does it have anything to do with ethnic differences? No. But does it create massive disparities between groups? Yes. Is it due to discrimination? No. And then he, he has, I mean, I'm, page after page, I mean, I, I could sit here and bore you. I could just read this thing. But he has page after page going through this, talking about all the different things that have caused uh, those kinds of differences in, in this world. And he, he makes you, while on his point here, let, let me add something else he said. This is more for next Sunday, but I'll just mention this here. He has an essay on slavery, and it, it was one of the most capped, I haven't finished it yet, it's like, it's a pretty lengthy essay, it's like a short book is what it feels like, but he has this long essay on slavery in, in, in American history, and this guy, he said he has a giant bookcase with nothing but books on slavery, and he said, um, he said here's something amazing, we tend, like, the world tends to talk about slavery as if it was like America's problem. And he's like, well, we all know that that's not true. And he he starts stating facts about slavery that I had no idea. So here are just a couple things that you may already know. I did not know until a couple weeks ago. He said this. Again, this is not throwing people under the bus. It's just, this is just history. I don't, look, facts cannot, (laughs) facts aren't like biased or something. They're just, they're what they they are. He said, um, North African Muslims between the year 1500 and 1800 enslaved more white Europeans, one million, than all of colonial America enslaved during the entire slave trade with West Africa. I had no idea that that was true. And he has scholarly footnotes to back that up with major works that have been done on this very thing. So if you, if you track the year 1500 to 1800, one million white Europeans were enslaved by North African Muslims during that 300-year period, outnumbering the slave trade in the colonial uh, America. That doesn't mean our slave trade wasn't horrifically evil. That's not what I'm saying. He said, he said how about this? We talk all the time about the West African slave trade. And he, he goes into detail about even that. But he says, how many of you have heard about the East African slave trade? I'd never heard of such a thing. He talked about how there was a massive East African slave trade that actually lasted longer than the West African slave trade, and it was based largely in the Muslim world. And he talks about how shipments of people in cruel conditions were being sent out in in East, and he talks about where they went and what countries they were affected by. Then he just starts tracking through history in general. He says, you'll be hard-pressed to find any culture and any country and any people group anywhere that was not involved in horrific and evil forms of slavery. And he says this, Typically, slavery was not even ethnic at many times in, in, in history. People of their own ethnicity would enslave other people of their own ethnicity. Why? Because it was often tribal. And you were often not trying to enslave someone 10,000 miles away by ship because you didn't have the technology or the time and the ability to get there. What you did was you found the most vulnerable people around you and you turned them through war and oppression into your slaves. So he just said, when, when we are only mainly emphasizing the colonial slave trade, which was wicked and evil, but when that's the only thing we're, we're discussing, he said, we end up distorting the whole conversation about these kinds of things. So again, he, he, Thomas Sowell is not a believer, but he has a tremendous resource on the historical data dealing with both discrimination, disparities, and the issue of slavery. And again, I, I want to reread what I've already read from him again, because I feel like I, I, a lot of it was just brand new to me. So th- there are many, many reasons for it. Okay, I'm going to give one more. Sorry. Now, this is no knock on anybody because I'm not a firstborn person, okay? This is a compliment to all firstborns out there. Are you ready? I'm, I'm thirdborn, so this doesn't affect me. I'm not saying this for my own advantage. <laughs> so uh, he said, if you do, and he has tons of data on this. 
in, in, in families of, you know, when you have multiple children, he says, uh, again, this is not true in every case. He's talking about generalities here. He said, in generalities, he talked about the success of firstborns academically and in the workforce exceeds by statistical data all other children born after the firstborn. Now, that's not true in every family. Okay, but just in, when, you just do the, when you just put the data together, he has all different sources of data on this. And uh, as a third born, I was going, hmm, should have been born first. But I'm reading this stuff. And he just said, listen, speaking generally, and he goes across all these different ways they measure this. He said, you can't have a more equal environment than being raised in the same home. You have the same mom and dad. You have the same house. You have the same income for your family. You probably go to the same school, maybe the same church or wherever you're, you know, whatever you do growing up, growing up. But statistically speaking, you have massive disparities that happen, but those are not due to some kind of racial bias or something. Clearly, we, with, with the firstborn, there's a particular attention that you get from the parents. He talks about that as well. But th there's all kinds of reasons for disparities that are not based in some kind of discriminatory action towards another person. Oh, it's just, you can't argue with the facts. Like, that's the amazing thing. And I think what's what's been disturbing is some people want to dismiss Sowell um, because he's he's not biased, and that 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 angers people. They don't want to look at these things from a neutral perspective. They don't want to say there's objective truth that doesn't depend on how we feel. Um, there's truth that's out there, and it is what it is, um, and we can either embrace it to our good or we can reject it and deny it to our to our harm. Um, I mean, and again, guys, that reflects the fact that we have a creator who is truth, who, who speaks only truth, um, and set up the world to function in specific, measurable, identifiable ways uh, that are objectively real, whether we want them to be or not. Um, two plus two equals four. Um, there's people who are trying to undo that today because to say with certainty that two plus two equals four is some form of oppression against people who might have a worldview that's, that's different than Western, European, Judeo-Christian, whatever, um, and that's imposing our mathematical values on people when for some people two plus two might not equal four. And, you know, if somebody wants to believe that, they're welcome to it, but they're in denial of reality. And, and um, that goes along with the opening video. I don't know if y'all caught the phrase during the oath that they were taking. I don't want to say it incorrectly, but I think they said something like honoring indigenous forms of medicine or honoring indigenous forms of healthcare and things like that. Yeah, now, to that now, effect. Yeah. Now listen, let's be very careful now. Okay. Some forms of medicine are objectively better than other forms of medicine, okay? Some more primitive forms of medication were simply not medicine at all. I mean, just look at the way the founding fathers, like George Washington's death. You remember how he died with the kind of treatment he was getting? It's like embarrassing to think that they were, they were putting... Uh, leeches, leeches on him. And it's trying to get his blood drained from the leeches because they thought it would replenish his blood supply. Not the best form of medicine, okay? Can we just agree that was not going to help you out putting a bunch of leeches on you when you're already deathly ill? So ancient forms of medicine, more primitive forms of medicine. My mom grew up in, in the Congo as a, as a missionary kid. Uh, there were witch doctors and, and different kinds of treatment, right? I think my grandmother woke up one morning with the witch doctor had put some sort of powder around her while she was sleeping, trying to put some sort of thing, curse on my grandmother or something like this. It's a strange story. But the point is this. If you take all forms of treating issues in the world and you just say they're all equal because to favor the modern Western view of medicine over others is a form of racism. And so we need to treat all forms of medicine equally. You're going to have a lot more dead patients if you do that. So in other words, there are real world consequences of saying we're going to honor indigenous forms of health and medicine and things like that. Well, if they have something that's legitimately objectively good to offer, then by all means, let's use it. But if it is truly uh, by objective standards, not as helpful, then it should not be 
honored in the same way. So uh, do, you, do you see the issues here that all get intertwined where uh, there are real world consequences even just uh, in our culture for how these things are handled. We're, we're almost out of time, Greg. Some closing uh, thoughts for today. Man, I don't know where to start, <laughs> honestly. I mean, one, I think, let's again go back to something we've said. Let's make sure we are letting Scripture shape how we think. Um, scripture is the Word of God. God is the creator of all things who defines all things. He is the final standard of what is, what is good, what is true, what is beautiful, what is right. Um, and therefore, his word reflects that characteristic of him. Um, if we're going to think soberly in the world we live in, we have to, um, as Christians, be shaped by a scriptural perspective on these things. And flowing from that, like because God made the world the way he did, we don't have to be afraid of science. We don't have to be afraid of investigating the facts. Like Christians of all people, we should not be afraid of pursuing the facts because we know facts are what they are because God is who he is and he set up an orderly, consistent world. Um, and so we should not be afraid. If someone says this, let's investigate it. If they make this claim, let's investigate it and see where the facts go. We don't have to be afraid of the truth. We don't have to be. No, that's a good place to, to wrap up. Can you close us in prayer? Yeah, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful, um, God, for the truth. God, it is the truth that sets us free. Um, Lord, guard us from being held captive by these worldly systems, these godless systems, Lord, that are poison to their core um, and in all their expressions. Lord, we see already the damage that is being done. And Lord, it is probably far worse than what we see. Um, Lord, the more we peel the layers off or move, remove the tops of these things, the, the filth that is festering um, in our culture, it, it is vile, it is awful to see. Um, but Lord, I pray for the church, for our church and for other churches, um, God, in our land, that we would be guarded against the lies of CRT, of this type of worldview that sees oppression everywhere. Um, God, guard us from that. Help us be on guard against it. Lord, give us a love for the truth. Give us a love um, for the facts. And Lord, in that, help us love people because God, as Mark was saying, this, effect, this has real world effects. And Lord, there are people's lives and souls at stake in this. And so God, help us love the truth so that we might speak the truth with clarity and humility and, and by your grace, see people delivered from these lies and this poison that is out there. Uh, so Lord, just continue to equip us as we think on what we've talked about today. We seek to make sense of it more and apply it. Lord, help us be able to put that to use in a way that is beneficial to those around us. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we're about to have to gather as a church family uh, before you and to worship you and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Please bless this, this gathering and our, our praying, our singing, our preaching, and our response, Lord, that we might better reflect Christ as a result. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And just one last thing is we've got, I think, three weeks left in this series, I think is what it's looking like. So three weeks left. And then uh, we'll talk more about this later, but our, both Sunday schools are going to merge for a, couple, for a few months and talk about the topic of God's providence. So that's the plan for the end of March into April. All right. Thank you, guys.